I am excited we get to start our series in Job this morning. And uh, we're going to be in Job really throughout the whole summer, from, from now through August. Uh, so we'll spend about, about 13 weeks. Um, yeah, that's right, I think. Um, through August, one way or another. And um, I'm just really looking forward to this. We've been talking about this um, as pastoral staff and, and staff and elders for the uh, last several weeks and, and spending time studying and preparing. Um, I've gotten to read through uh, Job um, kind of on time one and a half right now and just reading it and, and taking it in. And so I'm excited for how the Lord's going to minister to us uh, through this book. Uh, but you might wonder, why Job? <laughs> you know, it may, maybe even after coming out of 1 Corinthians, why Job? And, uh, you know, what, why has God led our session of elders to decide to preach through Job? Well, in short, it's because God wants to minister to us through Job. He, he wants to, to minister his grace, his mercy through Job to us. And that's individually, but it's also as a community that there's ways that God will use his message in this book to shape and strengthen our church. And that's what we're, we're looking forward to. That's what we're trusting him to do. He's going to point us to our Savior who is both righteous and a suffering servant as we study this book together. Let me read you a quote from a, a, commentator, a commentator, Christopher Ash, that I, I just think is helpful, again, as we think about the book of Job. And uh, we're, we're going to get into the text here in just a minute, but I want to give you a couple thoughts for the whole book of Job just to start out. And so we'll, we'll get into the text in just a moment. But this is from Christopher Ash. Job is a fireball book. It is a staggeringly honest book. It is a book that knows what people actually say and think, not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers, and it knows what we say in our tears. It's not merely an academic book. If we listen to it carefully, it will touch us, trouble us, and unsettle us at a deep level. There's a lot in this book. And as he says, this book is, is honest. It's honest about suffering. It's honest about difficulties that we face. It's honest about questions that we might ask amidst those difficulties. It's honest about the seemingly wise words that we may utter to a friend while they're going through difficulty that really lacks wisdom. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end of those seemingly wise words. They really lack compassion, lack genuine biblical wisdom. It's honest about those conversations. It's honest about the thoughts that often reside deep down in our hearts and in our minds that we may not even want to acknowledge to ourselves. And it's honest about God's sovereign power. It's honest about God's justice. It's honest about God's fullness of knowledge. And so that's some of what we're going to be thinking about and hearing about from the Lord over the next couple months. I imagine some of you are, are really quite familiar with Job. Maybe some of you are, are unfamiliar with Job. Uh, I was having a conversation with Clinton just before this, and he was just talking about, I think it was in college, he said that, right, that the, the, one of the things that people know about Job is it talks about Leviathan, kind of this, this mysterious animal, and we'll, we'll get to that later, right? We, some, some may know, well, Job talks a lot about suffering, and those, those things are true, and we're going to get to those. Um, even next week, we'll, we'll talk about Job's suffering. And then really the, the bulk of the 42 chapters are just conversations, 
just conversations about and trying to figure out why is Job suffering, what's going on. And then finally, at the end of the book, we get to hear from God himself. Well, a couple of thoughts, again, that'll just kind of hopefully give us a frame to think about and understand this, this book. First, this is a wisdom book. All right, so we, we read from Proverbs 2 just a little bit ago. Job is a lot like Proverbs. It's a lot like Ecclesiastes. It's, it's wisdom for us. It's, it's God's word to help us navigate life. A lot in this book about how to navigate the difficulties and the suffering of life. So seek wisdom. Seek to grow in genuine, godly, biblical wisdom through this. Another thing, this book is mostly poetry. So it's going to start with narrative. It's going to end with narrative. But really, almost everything in the middle is just poetry. And so we're going to be reading and, and hearing God through poetry for most of the summer. And there's something about poetry that often exposes or pricks our hearts in ways that narrative may not. So, so let it do that. One of the things, just as a kind of a side note, Hebrew poetry often, almost always, like a, in a, in the translators will show this in the verse, like the verse will be broken up into multiple lines, usually two or three. And those, those lines go together. They're, they're not exactly the same, so don't think of them as strictly synonymous, but they're, they're parallel. They, they build on each other. And so as we read the poetry of Job, think on that. that. That'll help us really understand what's being said here. Another thing, this book is a story. So even though it's a lot of poetry, it's, it's really a story. Right? It's a story about Job and about what God's doing. So, so place it within that overall narrative. This book is long. It is 42 chapters. Again, one of the commentators said, when we ask the question, what kind of God allows this kind of world and this kind of suffering, God doesn't just send us a tweet or a postcard. God wrote a 42-chapter book that we are to sit in and meditate on and really just sit and stew in for the summer. And so let me invite you to just sit in this book. Two more things. The narrative at the front and the end of the book really can help serve as a lens as far as understanding the book, right? Understanding the conversations in the middle can be a little bit challenging. We're trying to discern, is what Job's saying accurate? Is it wise? Is it true? Is what Job's friends are saying, is it true? Is it wise? Is it biblical? Well, to, to help us understand that and discern that, the narrative at the very front and the narrative in the last couple chapters and God's response in the last couple chapters helps kind of give us a clue towards that. So, yeah, just something to hold on to there. And finally, this is a book about God. It's about Job, but it's really about God. It's about his glory, his purposes, it's about what he wants to do. It's about he, how he runs the world. It's about his glory, and it's about his son, his suffering servant, Jesus. And so seek to know and trust and love Jesus more through our time in Job. So again, those are just hopefully some helpful thoughts. I want you to think on those, pray on those. Uh, right, we've been talking about prayer the past couple weeks, so, so pray, ask God to minister to us through this book over the summer. And as I mentioned in the, in the, the email this week, um, let me just encourage you, read the book of Job on your own or, or as a family. Read the book of Job once, twice, three times over the course of the summer. And again, that, that'll add to that, that idea of stewing in this book. God will work through that. So with all that being said, let me invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Job 1, 1 to 5. And as we read this, let me just invite you to think, for a book that's 42 chapters and that's going to talk a lot about suffering, that's going to get to Job's suffering very quick and then deal with that in conversation throughout the rest of the book, why does this book start this way? 
Why does it start with these five verses? All right, Job 1, 1 to 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your spirit who lives within us. And we ask that you would give us understanding. We ask that you would give us faith. We ask that you would give us love of you. God, we ask that you would help us to hear and respond to your word as you would have us to do. We pray this through Jesus, your son. Amen. You may be seated. So I want you to just think about your relationship with God, your, your walk with God, your, your standing before God. And I want to just ask you to consider for, for yourself, what is your greatest need in your walk with God? Now, there, there's lots of things you need, perhaps. But what is the greatest thing, the most fundamental need that you have in your walk with God? Right, we can think about it collectively for our church. As Christ Community Church, what is our greatest need as a local body in relationship to God? What do we need? We can broaden it from there, right? For, from, for all of God's people, over all of time, across all of space, for God's people, what is our greatest need before Him? What is our greatest need in our relationship and walk with God as His people? Just hold that thought. We'll ask you, before we read, why does this book start this way? And I think we'll see some of that as we go through this text. Um, but just a couple more questions that will help us as we think through that is, is there's something that God wants to show us about Job. That's one reason it starts this way. What, what does he want us to see about Job? Right? There's, there's something also about this that just prepares us for the 42 chapters of this book. Right? This is the very beginning, so it, it prepares us. So, so how does this book, this, this section, prepare us for that? And then all of Scripture points us to Jesus. And so what does God want to show us about our Savior? What does God want to show us about our Lord Jesus? So be thinking about these things as we get into this. But what we'll see in the text, and you can see this in the outline, um, really rather simple. We'll see Job's righteousness, Job's greatness, and Job's sacrificial concern. And so first, Job's righteousness. This book really starts like many stories do, and it introduces us to the main character, right? So the main character here is Job, and this, this first section just says, well, here's a little bit about this guy that this book's going to be about. Well, we learned that he lived in a place called Uz, right? As the, the narrative continues, if you look down at verse 3, it says that he's the greatest of all the people of the East, Okay, so so he's, he's from this place we don't know a whole ton about, but it's in the east. Well, east of what? Well, east of Israel. 
Because this is a, a book written for and to God's people, Israel. And so Job lived to the east of Israel. What's important for us to see in that is that Job is not an Israelite. He's not a son of Abraham. He's not a member of the covenant people of God that lives in the promised land. Like that's not where he's at. He's outside of that. And so for those hearing this, they're hearing, well, here's a man outside of the land. But, but we see that he does know, he does trust, he does love God. We also see here that whenever exactly this takes place, it's around the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Kind of the, the time frame of, of Genesis, if you will. He's in the, the time of the patriarchs because how he's described, even how his wealth is described, it echoes how Abraham's described. It echoes how Abraham's wealth and, and the rest of, of the patriarchs. It just sounds like it. And so, again, Job is living in, to the east of Israel, and he's around the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's just a little of the biographical kind of where and when and who. But after giving us that, which may at one level seem not so interesting, it gives us this fourfold description of Job's righteousness that just is amazing. Right? Look at what we hear. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Like, who, who doesn't want that etched on your gravestone? Right? Who doesn't want that to be what people remember about you and say about you? Like, but that's what we read about Job. This is what is true of him. He's blameless and upright. But again, this echoes Noah. Back in Genesis 6-9, Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then Abraham is commanded by God in Genesis 17 to keep the covenant by being blameless and walking before God. So this, these ideas of being blameless echo Noah, Abraham. The, 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 the word blameless doesn't strictly mean sinless and perfect and doesn't have anything, any sin at all, but it means he's genuine and full of integrity. Right? You, you can't look at him and find something to complain about because even when he does sin, he repents of it. Right? And, and Job at home is the same as Job in public. Job with these people is the same as Job with those people. He's the same man all the time. He is full of integrity. He's blameless. What you see is what you get with Job. And he's upright. Right? So his behavior, his dealings with others is, is right. It's good. Right? This is the kind of guy that you want to strike a deal with because you can trust him. You, tr you can trust his word. His relationships are straight and upright. It goes on to say he feared God and turned away from evil. It's not only his relationships before people, it's his relationship with God. Right? Job is righteous in both of those realms. Right? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Job fears God. Right? He reverently honors his creator. He genuinely desires to please God in all of his life with, with integrity, with wholeness. Right? So this meant that he turned from evil, that he withstood temptation, that he was resolute in his commitment to follow and honor and love God. He walked the path of God's law, and if he got off that path, he repented and came back to that path quickly. Right? We, we sang Psalm 1. That. You can kind of think like that sounds a lot like Job here. We've read Proverbs too. That sounds a lot like the wisdom that we see in Job's life here. Proverbs 8.13 tells us the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. To fear God and to hate evil or turn away from evil go together. 
So, so Job fears God and he turns away from evil. Or as one commentator says, he fears God by turning away from evil. You can't have one without the other. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, at the end of the book, in a kind of a summary statement of wisdom, we find the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That sounds a lot like Job right here, right? Fearing God, keeping his commandments, walking with him. He's a righteous, repenting, faith-filled, fear and lover of God. This is Job. What's more is he's east of Israel. He's, he's not in the covenant land, surrounded by covenant people who are doing the same. Most likely, he's surrounded by people who don't have the same reverence and care for the Lord as he does. Again, that, that sounds a lot like Noah, right? In Noah's day, God was grieved over the evil that resided in the heart of man, but Noah was blameless and upright following God. Job is like that. And I, I can't stress again, just as in thinking about how this prepares for the whole book, I can't stress how important this is to hold on to for the rest of the book. Because Job's righteousness is going to be denied and debated throughout the rest of the book. And we're going to see that as we get into what his friends say and into what Job says. Right? Is he righteous? Well, we have the answer. He's righteous. Right? This fourfold description, in fact, is going to be repeated twice in next week's sermon in 1.8 and 2.3 from God himself. So when God describes Job, he uses this fourfold description. So again, the, the question isn't, is Job a righteous man? He, he is. He is walking with the Lord. And in some ways, as we go throughout this, the narrative, the question is going to become, will Job remain righteous? Will he continue in the way that he began? And that's, you know, we'll get into that. So again, I'll ask you what I asked you earlier. What do you need? What do we need in our walk with God. Well, something Paul tells us in the New Testament in Philippians 2, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. What Paul commands of us, what he tells us, what God commands of us through Paul, sounds very similar to what we see described of Job, right? Be blameless, be innocent, right? You're living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, but be blameless, shine as lights in the world, right? Th think of the last time that you went out and just looked at the stars in the sky, right? You, you see them bright. You get away from kind of city lights. You see those bright lights against the black sky, or maybe you've been diamond shopping, right? Some guys in this congregation have recently, right? And you, you go in, you see those shining, brilliant, bright diamonds. What, what does the jeweler do? He puts them underneath a bright light on top of a black background, right? And that makes the, the, the brightness contrast with, what, with what's around it. You see the brightness of the diamond all the more, right, in that setting than kind of in reality. <laughs> it's the same with the stars, right? You look up and, and they're beautiful because they're bright amidst the darkness. Well, there's something like that going on with what we see in Job and with what we see Paul telling us in Philippians 2. He tells us we're, we're to be like those bright diamonds, we are to be like the, the bright, shining stars in the dark sky. We're surrounded. There are people around us who do not love the Lord. That's to be expected. That's part of life in this world east of Eden. But God's people are to stand out. There's to be a distinction. There's to be something that looks different in our lives 
where this fear of God, this turning away from evil, shows up in our daily and weekly lives. And so I think the, the beginning of this passage just begs us to really look at ourselves, right? Look, look at your week and your days, and, and do you see these things as becoming more true in your life? Is, this, is your fear of God greater than it was two years ago? Is your walk a little bit more blameless than it was four or five years ago? Right? Do you see God growing you in this idea of being, having integrity and being blameless and, and delighting in His law like Psalm 1 says? Like, do we see God growing us in those ways? Right? There ought to be this consistent love and service of others with integrity that God is growing in our lives. And that's what we see with Job, even amidst whatever is going on around us. But Job isn't only righteous, he's also great. And that's what we see in verses 2 to 3. And we read two passages that will help with this. Proverbs 22.4 says, the reward, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Right? Don't we see those two passages on display in Job's life? Right? Isn't, isn't this a blessed man who's, who's reaping the rewards, right? That's what Proverbs 22 says, that Job's righteousness, it, it earns him a reward. God is blessing him with these things because he is a righteous follower of God. That's what Proverbs 22, 4 highlights, and this passage shows us. So first look at his family. He's got seven sons. He's got three daughters. He's got 10 kids. Biblically, who could ask for more than that? Right, seven is a number very significant throughout Scripture. It represents completion, fullness, ideal. It's, 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 it's perfect. It's a perfect picture. It's a complete picture. He, he has a complete set of sons, you might say. But then he's got three daughters, ten kids total. Numbers three and ten are also quite significant in Scripture. If you take all of this together, this is a picture of an ideal man with an ideal family. Right? Who, who would want more than seven sons and three daughters and ten? Like, it's perfect. This is a complete household. Job is blessed. But it's not just his home. It's not just his domestic life. It's also his business life, if you will. Not only his children, but his possessions and wealth, too. I mean, just look at what he has. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants. He's got it all. Right? Job is the guy who, who has the nice family that he wants, but he's also the guy who has the nice house and the nice job, and he's well taken care of. He doesn't have anything to complain about. He doesn't suffer from lack. He's got it. Like, th this is Job. He has everything that we might want. He's succeeding, if you will. He's prospering at home and in business with his children and his family, but also in commerce. It's a beautiful picture. And the, the summary statement that we get here at the end of verse 3 says, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Like, he, he was the man. Like in Uz, in the East, like there was no one greater, no one more honored, no one who had it all more than Job. 
This is the picture of Job that we get. And we just kind of got to ask at this point, who doesn't want to be Job? Right? Like, if you know the rest of the story, you may not want to go there yet. But like, who doesn't want to be Job here? Who doesn't want this? Right? So some of the things you may read about Job, and you see, I long for that to be true in my life. I long for that righteousness and that blamelessness. I long for that family. I long for this, that, or the other that I see in Job's life. Right? We, we would love to be like Job here. We would, even more than that, we would, we would love to have Job in our neighborhood, right? This would be a great neighbor to have, right? We would love to have Job as even our king and ruler. Like, this is the kind of guy that you want ruling, right? You can trust him. Everything would go fine. It, it makes me think of God's initial command and blessing to Adam, right? When God made man, he blessed them, Adam and Eve, and he, he commissioned them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, right? That was God's initial plan, if you will, for Adam and Eve. And in, in, in some ways, what we see in Job is a fulfillment of that. He's, he's living out the blessing and the command that God gave to Adam. He's a good picture of that. Okay, so he's blamelessly righteous. He's really an ideal man in many ways. He's great. Finally, we see his sacrificial concern. So verses 4 and 5, some sort of a frequent basis, ongoing basis. Job's kids got together. You might think of this like, you know, every son when he had his birthday. It's like, hey, all the other kids come over. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate. It's, it's going to be awesome. So, something like that. It was this ongoing thing where each son would invite all the other children over and they would feast and party and eat and drink and celebrate together. There's no word of bickering that's going on here, right? There's, there's no word of, well, I'm not going to go to that brother's house because he did, you know. Like we don't see that in this, in this story. There's just this picture of ongoing celebration that's happening. And everything that's described here is above board. Right? There's nothing indicative in the text that there's something wrong in their parties. Right? There's nothing that we're told is immoral or out of order in their celebrations. Right? This, this just appears to be a good, hearty, family, ongoing celebration. That's what Job's family is doing. But how does Job respond? What does he do every time that his children gather together to celebrate? Well, first he sends for them, right? It says that he would send and he would consecrate them. So he would, he would call his children to himself in order to consecrate, in order to cleanse, in order to set them apart for the Lord, right? He, he wanted them to be clean. And then he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So, so every child got a burnt offering for them, right? This one's for you, this one's for you. He would sacrifice either seven or ten animals for his children, like every time. That's a big deal. The, the burnt offering later, when, when, when this is in Israel's law, was an expensive sacrifice. It was the whole animal was burnt up. And so when we read of Job doing this, this is a big deal for him. He's urgent. He's serious about it. He, he seems to have, well, going with what we saw earlier, he has an understanding that sin is offense against God. And that that offense against God is ultimately treason that needs payment of death. 
and blood. And so Job sees that, he knows that, and he is offering the death of an animal for every child every time this happens. That's Job's response. But we've already noted there's nothing we're told that they do wrong, right? There's no sin that's actually highlighted for us. So, so why, Job? Why are you doing this? Well, it's because Job is concerned about what might be going on in their hearts, right? Look at verse 5. For Job said, it may be, maybe, possibly, who knows, my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. See, Job says, I can't see their hearts. I don't know if there's sin or not, right? I can look on the outside. I can look at these celebrations. There's no, there's no sin I see, right? If there was obvious sin, we can presume that Job would sacrifice and offer um, an animal for that, but he doesn't see anything, but that doesn't make him sleep well at night. He says, I don't know because I can't see my children's hearts. They may be outwardly honoring God, but in their hearts, they may be cursing him. I, I don't know because I can't see it. And Job takes it so seriously, so urgently, that he summons them and consecrates them and offers a burnt offering every time. Now notice what Job didn't do. Right? He, he could have simply imagined that all was well with his children. Right? They're good kids. They're just having a, a celebration for their birthdays. It's fine. I don't need to worry about anything that might be lurking underneath. He didn't do that. He could have perhaps thought sin was lurking in their hearts, but either not known what to do about it or not had the courage to do something about it or maybe just not thought it was a big deal, right? He looks and he sees, well, everything on the surface is fine. And if, if everything on the surface is fine, I don't really need to worry about what sin might be lurking beneath. He could have just brushed it off, but he didn't. Maybe he could have taken their sin seriously but instead of what he did, he could have investigated them. He could have badgered them with questions every time. Now, what did your brother do? Why, why did you do that? What did they do? He could have just gone overboard in badgering them. But that's not what we're told. Or he could have been secretly suspicious, right? Assuming what's going on, do, saying and doing nothing about it, but being cold and prideful and silent towards his kids. But Job didn't do any of those things, right? At least one of those things we're probably all prone to do in those type of situations. But no, Job interceded. Job went to the Lord pleading with God through sacrifice. He said, I know that sin might be in my children's hearts in a place where I can't see it, and I don't know if it's there, but I'm going to go and I'm going to plead to the Lord through the sacrifice of an animal. Job was more concerned to intercede than to badger. Right? He was more concerned to go to the Lord than to just badger his children and beat them up about it. Job was more concerned to pray for any sin that might be there, possibly, who knows, than to just presume that all is well. That's what Job is concerned about. Well, I imagine that, like me, there's a lot of things that concern you. Right? There's a lot of things that weigh upon your heart week by week that stay there. There's a lot of things that just circle around in your head and you can't get those thoughts out and they just come back day by day. Well, as many of you know, we've been working on finishing our basement for the last several months. Also, my wife is pregnant. There's a lot of things to be concerned about just with those two things, right? 
With the basement, there's a thousand decisions I've got to make. And there's something new that I've got to learn about or figure out or call somebody about or ask my helpful neighbor about every week, right? There, there's something that I've got to figure out every week. It, it doesn't go away, right? Maybe you've got home projects that are like that. It's not just home projects, right? It's my classes. It's work. It's this, that, or the other. It's family relationships, right? It's what I read on Facebook or what I read in the news, or it's what I think that person's thinking about me when I'm around them or what I'm reading into their thoughts about me, right? All of these things can be concerns that weigh. And so what concerns you? What weighs upon your mind and your heart? You might think about the last two weeks of, as we spent two sermons on the, the Lord's Prayer as, am I, am I praying about the right things? Am I praying about God's priorities? Right? That's a question I've had to ask myself. In some ways, today, this passage, God's asking us, are you concerned about the right things? Are you concerned about God's priorities? Or even to, to nuance that a little bit, are you concerned with the right priority about God's priorities? See, with Job, Job is a man concerned about sin, concerned about one standing before God. We see that about himself, but also about his children. He, he, that is his concern, is, is one standing with God in, in a right place. And because of that concern, Job is led to act. He's led to respond, and he pleads with God through sacrifice. And so two questions for you. What concerns you? Right? What, what is it that weighs on your heart? What is it that occupies your thoughts and doesn't leave your mind? Lots of things, I imagine. But we, when you consider your own heart, your own sin, do you have a concern like Job does? Right? Do you have a concern for your heart like we see Job have for his and for his children's? Is sin easily brushed off as if it's nothing, not a big deal? Is your sin heavy? Do you see it as heavy? Do you see it really as the filth that it is, that God tells it it is, as the offense against our creator, our maker, our redeemer? In honesty, our sin is something that should give us great concern, right? This, that's something that should be a big deal to us. Fathers, let me speak to you specifically here. As I've been challenged as a father through this text this week, because Job's a father, what do we see this father doing in this text? All right, we see this father so concerned with his children and their hearts and their sin and any sin that might be there that the thing that he does in this text is he goes and intercedes to the Lord for them. And I just want to ask you as fathers, is that something that's true in your life? Is that characteristic of your fatherliness? Or are you concerned for your children, for their hearts, for sin that may or may not be there, right? Even if everything looks good on the surface, do you have a concern for what may be there that you can't see? Not just fathers, right? Everybody. As a follower of God, this, this is a concern that should really color our relationships with those around us, right? So as you think about coworkers, you think, you think about neighbors, you think about people that you spend time with, is this a concern that you have? Is this something that you think about and that, that weighs upon your heart? Do, do, are you concerned about any sin that might be in their heart, about their standing with God? Is that something that you think about or do you find that you spend time with them 
kind of blissfully ignoring the gravity of that. So what is your concern? What concerns you? But the second question is, what do you do about it? Right? If, if, we, if we are concerned about one standing before God, if we're concerned about sin that may even be hidden in the heart, what do you do about it? Well, like Job, we ought to go to the Lord pleading through sacrifice. Right? He pleads through the sacrifice of these burnt offerings. We plead through the perfect blood of our Savior Jesus. Right? We approach the throne of grace and we plead with God that he would show mercy. And so if you treat your sin and the sin of others lightly, let me invite you to consider the costliness of the sacrifice that was given. Right? If sin is not a big deal for you, then look at what it costs to pay for it. The precious, the perfect, the blameless, the righteous, the upright life of our Savior. May that confront any light view we have of sin. But maybe your sin and the sin of others is something that weighs heavy upon you like a rock that is immovable. Right? Whatever you do, it doesn't move. It just stays there. Well, let me invite you to look at the fullness, at the perfection of the sacrifice that was offered. Right? Jesus' sacrifice left, it covered everything. There's nothing left to pay. And so if your sin and the sin of others weighs heavy upon you, find hope in the fullness of Christ's sacrifice. Right? As you think about friends, as you think about neighbors, do you, do you pray in a way like Job prays? Do you plead like Job pleads? Do you plead like Luther did when he, when he prayed the Lord's Prayer? Lord, convert Right, Lord, cleanse and forgive. Lord, show mercy to this person that I care about that I live near. Lord, extend your mercy to them and grant them repentance that they would know you. Right? Is that characteristic of your prayers? But finally, let me look again at you fathers. Do you pray like Job prays for his children? For me, sometimes, but not as much as I ought to. This week, I've prayed more like this. And I hope this next week, I pray more like this. And I hope for you fathers that you pray more like Job does this next week for your children. Saying, I don't know what's in their hearts. Sometimes you do, right? And you can pray for those things that you see going on in their hearts and minds. But a lot of times we don't. But guess what? You know the one who does know their hearts. You know the one who has the power to change hearts, who has the power to cleanse hearts. And as a father, you get to come and intercede for your children. So go and plead for your children through the blood of Jesus. So again, let me ask you, what is your greatest need? What do you need in relationship with God? We sure ought to be more like Job than we are. I wish my, my life looked more like Job's does here than it does, right? I, I, I wish I had this deep sacrificial concern for sin, for my children's sin, for the sin of others more than I do. I wish that I was blameless and upright and feared God and turned away from evil more than I do. Right? We, we all ought to long for those things. But I'll tell you that our greatest need isn't that. Our greatest need isn't just that we would have more sacrificial concern. Our greatest need is that God would actually have that sacrificial concern for us. Because it's his sacrificial concern for you which will actually bring about cleansing, which will actually bring about blamelessness and uprightness and the fear of God. It's his sacrificial concern 
that will change us and forgive us. And so we need that. And the good news is God has displayed that sacrificial concern for us, right? God knows the sin lurking in your hearts. He's, he's not like Job who says, well, maybe there's, there's sin in their hearts. I don't know. He says, no, I know every bit of sin that resides in that heart. I know even the sin that they don't know that lies hidden that other people don't know and they can't see, but I know it, I see it, I see the filth of it, and I offer the perfect, full, complete covering for it, right? In this story, right, we're invited and we, and we ought to see Job as a sort of model for us, right? He, he is one who follows God, and so he's kind of one who's walked this race before us and we get to walk this race after him. But I want you to see yourself also as Job's children. Right? We're, we're the ones in need of the, the fatherly sacrifice. We're the ones in need of the father who loves us and sees us and offers a costly sacrifice for our sin. And that's just what our father has done, right? He sent his son to fully, costly pay for every bit of sin that resides in your heart. And our only hope is to look to him and hope. You can look back at our call to worship this morning. What we said together, Isaiah 61.10. Let us greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed us with the garments of salvation. He has covered us with the robe of righteousness. Right? God sees the sin that lies hidden in your hearts. God knows it. It's not hidden from him. But if your trust is in Jesus, that sin has been replaced with a garment of salvation. It's been replaced with a robe of righteousness. In Christ, we have the righteousness of God. And so the blamelessness, the righteousness that you long for, it's actually given through your faith in Jesus. And as you trust Jesus more, that righteousness starts to show up in your day-to-day -day interactions, in your day-to-day -day life. It comes about because that's what God is doing in us. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that you have shown concern for our sin even when we blissfully ignore it or when we treat it lightly or when we think it's more than what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that he was the perfect and full sacrifice. God, that he was the one-time sacrifice so that sacrifice is over so that we can come to you. Father, we thank you that we are righteous in your sight. We praise you, the righteous King. We praise you through your son, Jesus. Amen.